It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed, that's me. They checked my idea at the door and said, uh, yeah, yeah, looks like him, even though the photograph was taken probably 30 years ago, so let the character on in for a while. So here we are. Somebody call security. <laughs> Great to have you with us. We are here, of course, keeping you company on your ride home every Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m., addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Well, pretty pretty full agenda on today's program. We're going to talk education a little bit later on in tonight's show, specifically dealing with the stark contrast between government education or government-provided education and those in the private or parochial sector. And one thing that people constantly scratch their heads over is why do children who test coming out of either homeschooled or privately schooled educational environments wind up having such significantly, consistently higher SAT scores. We're going to try to get to the bottom of that question. Patricia Aguilar joins us later on in tonight's program. And are you fearful? Are you afraid that your job may disappear to a robot? I'm watching Marco in there right now. He's just shivering. Actually, Marco, the bigger concern is putting a robot on this side of the glass, <laughs> which might, some would say, be a big improvement. But are we to fear advancements in technology and robotics as much as some suggest? Or could it be, could it be that these advancements, in fact, could be setting the stage for the biggest job creation in world history? Best-selling author John Tamney, who was a uh, economy editor and columnist at Forbes magazine will join us to talk about this very issue. We'll get to that a little bit later on in tonight's program. All right, down to cases. It was a month before leaving office that President Obama issued one of his final executive orders. In this case, an executive order doing a favor for some of his friends, protecting Title X funding to organizations like Planned Parenthood. Now, this, of course, has been a sticking point for many, many years, almost a seesaw horse back and forth from administration to administration. Ronald Reagan first in the 1980s, restricting the access um, of um, organizations like Planned Parenthood to Title X funding for the express purpose of abortions. That decision, of course, continued on until we had uh, the next Democrat in office. And then, of course, by executive order, it was reversed. We had it reversed under Bill Clinton, restored under George Bush, reversed again under Barack Obama. Well, today, today, the administration has issued some new Title X grant requirements. We find out what the implication of all of this is. Doreen Denny joins us. Doreen, Hello. thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, Senior Director of Government Relations, I might add. And uh, Doreen, give us a bit of a look as to what's going on here and the significance of the new rules handed down by the Department of Health and Human Services. Well, the, the primary significance is that we're returning to the original intent and integrity of the Title X program. The Title X family planning program was never intended as a program to support or fund abortions. Uh, it was intended to provide comprehensive um, family planning services for low-income, primarily low-income uh, families. 
and um, the it's a discretionary program, meaning that the Secretary of Education has full authority to establish the ground rules that would be required for a grant uh, recipient. And again, in line with the um, prohibition that was always established that we wouldn't use federal taxpayer monies to um, promote or, or um, support abortion. So these rules are basically returning in, in, in the, to the original intent and integrity of the program by uh, establishing a very bright line between um, what these agencies do or any grantees can do regarding the services that are uh, intended and those that aren't. Um, so we're, we're very pleased that the Trump administration is, is moved in this direction. Um, there are 194 members of Congress uh, sent a letter uh, recently to the, to the administration and uh, requested that this be done, that this is the time for us to get out of this business of, of, of allowing for loopholes to fund abortion and to get back to the original intent of this program. And, of course, the irony is that they have been able to very uh, nicely play a game of shells, what's the old shell game here, in that while the, the clear intent, the spirit of the law, uh, certainly did not want any of the funding to go to provide abortion services, many of the providers principally Planned Parenthood, has been able to kind of get around that by basically using the funds for other services that kind of go hand in hand. I mean, clearly, um, in a Planned Parenthood abortion clinic, you need things like medical supplies and staff salaries, and uh, you got to pay for utilities and all of that. So to suggest that it doesn't go directly to abortions uh, is a little bit been on the disingenuous side historically, hasn't it? It has, in fact. And, you know, the, the Title X program does allow for any uh, recipient that wants to comply with the rules to use funding for some of those purposes in order to um, be able to operate. So that was never restricted in per se, but you're right, it became sort of a slush fund for um, those who would want to, you know, divert funds then for providing abortions on in co-located in, you know, same same locations. Um, for, uh, you know, being able to have money to go in that direction and, uh, and be able to take care of or cover other expenses, as you mentioned. And, you know, what's what's problematic about all of this, of course, is particularly with Planned Parenthood, who have become down through the years masters at this game. I remember a couple of years ago uh, when there was talk about uh, addressing the issue concerning uh, whether or not they were selling baby body parts in relationship to stem cell research, et cetera, et cetera, on the backside of abortions. And they insisted, no, 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 not only do we don't do that, but we're not really in the abortion business. In fact, the big part of what we do is dealing with women that have breast cancer, only to find out that Planned Parenthood, in fact, does not even provide mammograms. They simply refer people out. But again, back to the shell game. And when you begin to understand that 90% of what Planned Parenthood does is, in fact, the abortion industry, and that 90% of the women who come through the doors of Planned Parenthood will wind up getting an abortion to somehow suggest, as they've tried to, that there's really no connection here, uh, it really defies the imagination, doesn't it, uh, Doreen? Yes, it does. And, and you know, uh, it's sort of talking out of both sides of their mouth as well, because on the one hand they say, oh, well, we don't really, you know, there's only this much money that, that is going here, 50 to $60 million dollars, a year from this Title X program, uh, it breaks down 
you know, we're only going to lose maybe 4% of the income that they get. But on the other hand, and they say, well, it's going to shut down all of their abortion clinics, it's going, you know, or all of their service clinics that are doing all of these other kinds of things. And it will, you know, be an end to providing services for, um, you know, for the, the people intended. And let's not forget, there are many other clinics out there, federal health federally qualified health clinics, there are rural health centers, there are other private entities that want to be able to participate in providing true health care services, family planning services for um, for individuals and have really sort of been, um, in some cases, if they're, they've had a conscientious uh, opposition to even, you know, for counseling on abortions and, and being required to do those things, which in fact was the case under Clinton's regulations and has carried through to this day, um, they haven't been able to be a part of this. And so, you know, these, again, these regulations, which which um, uh, are going to be, first of all, they have to be um, advertised for the next 60 days, uh, probably starting next week, so that the public can comment on these and say why this is so important. I mean, anybody, pro or con, can, and we're, we're, we're going to be encouraging um, uh, all of our membership and so certainly anybody that can to go to our website, concernedwomen.org, and, uh, and, and be able to be part of this comment process because it's going to be important in establishing these final rules that, uh, that we make a case for why, you know, taxpayers ought to be out of this business. They want to be out of this business. Sixty percent of Americans say they don't want federal tax money to go to abortions. And, uh, and, and as you said, start really exposing uh, the kind of entitlement uh, mentality that Planned Parenthood has had all these years is if they're, you know, entitled to these funds for these programs, for the Title X program, which just is not true. Well, and at the end of the day, too, uh, Doreen, if many of these uh, feminists and uh, pro-abortion organizations, NARAL, et cetera, et cetera, and those that stand so firm in uh, making sure that abortion services are available to women everywhere, if they believe in that so much, then why don't they put their money where their mouth is and go out and raise some money and provide the resources uh, that will pay for the abortions if that's what they so firmly believe in and allow the average American, and a vast majority of us, in fact, stand against abortion, allow the average American to be able to be a conscientious objector and say, we won't have our tax dollars go to providing this service. And so, while personally I'd like to see the practice end altogether, if at the very least we can say, okay, no more of my tax money going to this, if NARAL wants to raise the money to provide the resources in order to have abortions take place, let NARAL go ahead and demonstrate um, just how concerned it is about this topic by providing all that money. What do you want to bet were that to happen, they would probably fall a little short. Well, we appreciate the update, Doreen, and uh, certainly invite folks to get more information and comment on this during the comment period, as Doreen mentioned. Details available at the Concerned Women for America website at CWFA. That's CWFA.org. Doreen Denny, who is the Concerned Women for America's Senior Director of Government Relations. Doreen, thanks for the time and the insights. Okay. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Welcome back to the program. 20 minutes after the hour, 5 p.m. here on your basic 
uh, Wednesday ride home. The rain never really materialized, did it? It tried so hard earlier today. I, I heard one of the reporters on uh, one of the local TV channels saying that it wasn't raining, but it was very heavy mist, and they had like uh, almost an inch of mist <laughs> in Santa Rosa today. But uh, who knows? Maybe it's gonna it's gonna break up in time for Memorial Day weekend. Yes. All right, Marco says yes. All right, so we have it on his authority, which means if the weather isn't good for your barbecue over the weekend, we'll, we'll all gang up on Marco come, uh, come Tuesday. Get him into the corner behind the, uh, behind the gym, you know, and give him a black eye or something. No, I'm only kidding. All right, let's, let's get down to cases here, shall we? If I said to you that robots will be the biggest job creators in world history soon... Would you be fitting me for a size 25 or 45 straitjacket? Well, think about this for a moment. I mean, historically, we, we've always sort of been fearful of change and advancement. And yet, as often as we have argued throughout the 20th and 21st century, maybe even toward the tail end of the 19th century history, that advancements and technology was going to kill jobs. While that may be true that they did, they also created more jobs. Witness, for example, the advent of the automobile assembly line. Well, that certainly killed off carriage makers' shop, didn't it? But look how many tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, that the automotive industry employs to this day every year. Probably could argue that the telephone in the 1930s killed off the telegraph that had been a primary means of long-distance immediate communication through the late 1800s, and yet who doesn't walk around today with a telephone in their pocket, right? Or the computer. Wow, look what the computer did to the old secretarial pool, right? Whole floor inside the office of nothing but gals uh, typing manuscripts and letters and so forth. Well, all that's displaced, but of course the jobs that went away have increased many fold over. So if historically there's a trend here, why are we so afraid of artificial intelligence and robotics? Well, let's get some answers. We're joined now by economist John Tamney. John is director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks, also a political economy editor and columnist at Forbes magazine and editor of Real Clear Markets Com. He's the author of a brand new book that deals with this very topic, how your work can become your passion. And uh, thanks so much, John, for being with us today. Hey, Mr. Roberts, thank you so much for having me on. I'm a long, long-time fan. It's a thrill to be on with you. So I've got to ask you, John, in, in March of 2015, when you first wrote an article that appeared in Forbes magazine and they all thought you were crazy, how can anyone in their right mind argue? <laughs> Doesn't he understand how many people are going to be put out of work as we see the advancement of robotics and yet, here we are, and as you argue, from a historical perspective, the paranoia is certainly nothing new, and there's a fundamental principle behind all of this, both in terms of job creation and economics, that maybe the average person who looks at robotics with a jaundice eye that seems to be forgetting. What is it that you saw back in 2015 that is coming to fruition today? Well, I, I think the first thing that needs to be stressed is that robots will be massive job creators precisely because they'll destroy jobs. Um, it's that simple. It's where there's change that you see the creation. Let's not forget that 150 years ago, you pretty much knew your life path when you, when you grew up. As soon as you were able, you were going to work six days a week on the farm. 
and then robots called fertilizer and tractors came along and were easily the biggest job destroyer in the history of mankind. But as opposed to putting us in bread lines, they just freed up all sorts of talent to direct their energies elsewhere at new ideas. And so we cured diseases. You mentioned the automobile, the computer. If it were about jobs, that would be easy. We just abolish the computer and the car and the ATM. We'd all be working. We would just be very poor. The beauty of, of robotics and, and automation is that they free us from the work that we don't need to do so that we can be experts, so that we can go to work and do what we do best as opposed to doing what we have to do. So it's fairly basic, I think. It really sort of comes down to the old principle my father used to say as I was growing up. Um, listen, as as you go through your scholastic career and then eventually into your, your life career, learn how not to work harder, learn how to work smarter. And I guess at the end of the day, when you look at this fundamental principle here, all of these advancements along the way have done just that, haven't they? They've allowed us to not work as hard, but work much smarter. Oh, absolutely. What your father said was so profound and so correct and perfect. We are a rich country not because we pursue grit. We are rich precisely because we avoid it. And machines and the division of labor enable us to avoid grit simply because when we divide up work, whether it's with people or with machines, we're able to specialize. And when we're able to specialize, we're much happier and we can work much longer hours because work is where we express our expertise. So all robots are going to do is they're going to speed the process whereby more and more people get up and say, I can't wait to go to work because work is where I showcase what's unique about me. It's where I showcase what I do best. Work is where we will show to everyone how talented we are. So it's going to be something that people love precisely because robots will save us from all the things that we had to do that we should that kept us from doing what we do best. So this isn't even simply as you're suggesting, and even the title of your new book, The End of Work While Your Passion Can Become Your Job, is not just a matter of working smarter and having things go easier for us, but also having the capacity really being freed to pursue our passion. I mean, I suppose there were those... John, that got up back in the day and said, boy, I can't wait to put in my 14 hours here on the farm and be baling hay and digging holes and chasing down cattle and doing all that good farmer-type work. I would suspect a few enjoyed that, and many more couldn't wait to escape to the big city and the drudgery of it all to be able to get into a job that was not only a bit easier on the back, but quite frankly, afforded them an even greater opportunity at advancement and bettering of their life for themselves and their families. Oh, absolutely. Imagine what it was like to get up and do something because you had to do it. Imagine what you and I would be like. I I can't speak for you, but if if my only option were farming, I would be pathetic. I would be lazy. If America had to count on me, John, and my only option were farming, we'd all be starving right now. (laughs) Yeah, precisely. You you think about is that you and I you taught the world long ago, says law. You know, is it any wonder that a lot of people died of starvation back in these more primitive times? Imagine if your only path to eating were doing something that had nothing to do with your skills. And so I strongly believe that happiness is a function of hard work. But you can't consistently work hard if you're doing something that has nothing to do with your skill set. And so what I'm describing is this happy world where 
more and more people get to express their unique intelligence in the workplace. When Bill Belichick became an NFL assistant back in the 1970s, it was a $25 a week job. You had to have something else going on. Well, nowadays, assistants in the NFL earn millions. Okay, that's a given. But it's become the work in football, a very cerebral sport, has become so specialized that there are 36 high school coaches in the state of Georgia alone who earn in the six figures doing something about which they're passionate, something that most people would find too complicated. Football's incredibly complicated. Well, now more and more people can get up and do something that's very intellectual. It's it's an expression of their intelligence, and they can do it for life. And I just want to celebrate this. This is where work is going if we embrace the technology that has so many people needlessly scared. And, of course, this not only plays into our ability to better our station in life and provide for a better future for um, future generations, our children, grandchildren, and so forth, but also to have that greater sense of, of the passion leading to a greater increased level of satisfaction in what we do. I mean, I, I bet there were one or two that came home after a 10-hour day at the um, factory line where they stuffed cotton into all the medicine bottles and saying, you won't believe how many medicine bottles I stuffed cotton into today. Boy, let's celebrate. Uh, But I would long expect that, on the other hand, someone who says, gee, you won't imagine the level of sales that I was able to bring into the company by closing this big deal or what I was able to creatively do with my hands at the draftsman table for the corporation that I work for. They're going to begin now manufacturing this product that I'm helping to invent. The job level, the satisfaction level that goes along with it is as important as the ability of the job to provide for your family. We're talking about just that very topic today with best-selling author John Tammany. The book is called The End of Work, Why Your Passion Can Become Your Job, newly released by Regnery Gateway and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through many of the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. When we come back, is it simply the fear factor that has so many people shaking in their boots over robotics, fear of the unknown, fear of the future? We'll talk about that as we continue our visit with the director of the Center for Economic Freedom and Freedom Works, political economy editor and columnist at Forbes magazine. John Tamney is with us on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. John Tamney, our guest today. John's latest book is called The End of Work, Why Your Passion Can Become Your Job, newly published by Regnery Press. And, of course, the fine folks that own Regnery also own this fine radio station. We are talking about the changes in technology that are scaring a lot of folks. And I have to wonder, John, you know, going back a century now, the the blacksmith that made horseshoes probably looked at Henry Ford's invention and must have screamed, you job killer, you. (laughs) Because he couldn't see what life beyond the anvil would be like. Is it something similar going on with people that are fearful about robotics and the advancement and the rate at which technology is advancing because they've been doing for what they've been doing for so long that they just simply can't see beyond to the next job, the next new thing? You know, my answer might surprise you. My, My take is that technology is not advancing fast enough that fortunes aren't being made fast enough. Because I don't think people are caught unawares by changes in technology and jobs. I think they, they're very aware of it. You, you look back to uh, the gold rush, just something as basic as that. 300,000 people from around the world raced out to Northern California for the opportunity. You look back to the late 90s, 
people from around the world were racing to where you are to get in on the technology boom. People see the price signals ahead of time that, hey, wait a second, something exciting is going on. I will leave this and better my station. My strong sense is that the, the reason the, the electorate is so up in arms in the 21st century is that we're not progressing fast enough, hence there aren't as many opportunities as there normally would be for people to change what they're doing and, and get into a new industry, something all new that pays better, that offers more advancement more quickly. Is that lack of speed, in your opinion, based on maybe fear? I don't think it's fear. I'd be curious what you think. I've always felt it was a function of the Treasury's oversight of the dollar. Um, when investors invest, they are buying future dollar income streams. And so when a dollar is weak, you are placing a major tax on the investment that drives progress. I believe that the 70s had the electorate unhappy because the weak dollar just uh, turned away a lot of investment, hence growth and opportunity slowed down. If you look at the 21st century, the dollar has been fairly weak, much of it. Is it any surprise that the electorate is unhappy? You go back to von Mises, you go back to Lenin, you go back to Keynes, they all agreed on one thing, debauch the currency, set the electorate on fire. I, I don't think people fear it. I don't think it's happening fast enough. So maybe part of the problem is that we have been constrained at certain levels, and we certainly know in a state like California where we've never met a regulation or law that we didn't want to pass because it seemed to be the next bright idea, uh, feeling as if we needed to coddle and direct industry uh, at every single level. And I wonder if, to a certain degree, we've sort of been our own enemies in this regard, that uh, we have so overregulated in so many areas that part of the strangling has, has forced innovators and investors to say, well, you know, if not now and here, then maybe somewhere else. I mean, look at how much money has been invested in infrastructure and in the manufacturing process and new technology in China. And, you know, China's economy, my goodness, we talk about them slowing, that they're going to go from 8% to 7%, and we're over here saying we would, we would, we would give our mother-in-law away. Well, maybe we do it anyway, but <laughs> we'd give our mother-in-law away to be able to see consistent threes and fours. Well, you hit on something very important. I mean, certainly, when I, whenever I go to China, I think it's got to be much more than nine. Uh, the, the advancement is so fast. But you, what you said is crucial. There's a nanotechnologist I know in Dallas, and I think anecdote can always be sort of questionable as he used to make an economic statement. But he is designing something so that people who are blind, he can put a microscopic chip in their eye to give them sight. And his point is, I'm not doing this in the United States. All of my experimentation is get get this. It's it's taking place in Europe of all places. The U.S. is so overregulated right now that an advance like this that could transform a lot of lives, he's not even giving Americans the right to try because he doesn't trust the regulatory system. And so. I think you're, we're not experimenting enough, and when you're not experimenting enough, you're not progressing, progressing enough. I don't buy that Americans are feel fearful of technology, but I think Americans are so used to economic growth that when it's not happening fast enough, they get frustrated, and we've seen that in the 21st century. Let me touch on another hot button that I know will immediately get a rise out of 75% of my listeners. You say in your book, The End of Work, While Your Passion Can Become Your Job, that education is important but overrated. Now, recognizing the fact that some of the greatest 
business leaders today barely, if ever, finished college or university, and most of the degrees that they enjoy are all honorary degrees, speak to that point. And I've always wondered, we spent so much time in recent decades talking about the importance of education, 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 that we never talk about job skills related to things like trade schools or just letting entrepreneurs get out there and be entrepreneurs. Yeah, the, the statistics are clear. I think of, of, of the world's billionaires, at least a third never went to college. Okay, so that's the first thing. But the second thing, look at a country like China. We've just discussed it. Its transformation is staggering economically. China is one of the most uneducated countries on earth. Its people had a, a rate of college education that was well below in numbers and percentages even the Philippines. Look at South Korea. South Korea in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s was one of the most illiterate countries on earth. And so what we see is education doesn't drive wealth. Economic freedom drives wealth. We in the U.S. have great universities because we're the richest, most entrepreneurial country on earth. We don't, we're not the richest, most entrepreneurial because we had the universities. Rich people want to send their kids to, good school, to famous schools. But let's not delude ourselves and presume that anything taught in school has any relevance to an entrepreneurial world that we've just said is constantly changing. What could professors teach us about when, by definition, they're teaching us about the past? Mm, good point. Now, let me ask you one other, uh, shall we say, uh, potential <laughs> alarm bell here for some. <laughs> uh, free market. Historically, the freer the market the easier the trade, the easier the trade, the greater the growth potential, and you begin to see the economy really hum on multiple cylinders. We know that one of the staunch positions that the president took during the campaign, at least, was we've got to do something about trade imbalances. But, of course, as much as we can look at this and say, gee, China sends us something and we tack 2% on and then sell it to market. We send them something for sale. They tack 25% on and then put it to market. Now, is there a problem here? I have have to wonder your thought, John, on the entire issue of trade wars. And, and while it might feel good to some who say, yeah, all of our jobs went to Beijing, could there be a double-edged sword here if we get engaged in trade wars that might end up having just the opposite effect instead of encouraging more uh, free market and, and getting the entrepreneurs really salivating and excited, but instead have a chilling effect? Uh, yeah, I think absolutely. Let, let's be clear. What, do, what have you and I been talking about here tonight? That you should work smart. You should do what you do best. And so my argument has always been that even if the rest of the world had major tariffs on us, we would still be wise to have no tariffs on them. Because just because other countries are injuring their, their citizens by, by taxing goods coming into the country, it doesn't change the fact that as human beings we benefit from dividing up work around the world. Division of labor doesn't mean you're going to be out of work. It just means that your work is going to be specialized. So who cares what China does? We will be the richer, more advanced, more specialized country the more that we're open to the world's plenty. And so always, always be open to, to the rest of the world simply because that's the path to the end of, the, of work. When you can divide work up, you can specialize. And when you're specializing, it's not like grit. It's not, it's, it's not hard work anymore because you're doing something that elevates what's unique about you. Finally, how would you, if you could label, and this may be an unfair question, 
so be glad I didn't start with this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but if we have sort of looking at the timeline from the industrial age, we went through America's manufacturing period into our service period into our information period. What what would we title, if we could, John, the next period here? Oh, I love your question. This is my favorite question ever, anyone's ever asked me about this book. I think what we're headed toward is we're headed toward a four-day work week, precisely because robots will make us so rich and, 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 and productive. We're going, we're going to have more and more people work four days a week. And so the demand for entertainment is going to skyrocket. We're seeing this right now. You can now make millions playing video games. You can make a lot of money being a video game coach. I think the next economy is going to be called the entertainment economy. And what's going to be fascinating about this is while politicians today promise to bring back manufacturing jobs, they'll soon enough be saying, we're going to bring back service jobs because more and more people will be entertaining people for a living. Hence, more and more people will get up and love going to work because work is where they do, where they showcase their skills and what makes them intelligent. See, now, based on that answer, I'm not sure whether I should go into the boss and say, starting next week, I'm only working four days a week, or I want to start working seven days a week because the demand for entertainment is going up. (laughs) Hey, John, thanks so much for the insights today. I know we've just sort of scratched the surface and people clamoring for more. Well, the easiest way to scratch that itch is to go out and pick up a copy of John's new book, The End of Work, Why Your Passion Can Become Your Job, again, newly released by Regnery Press. You'll find it at bookstores around the Bay Area through Amazon.com. You can also get more information about the great work that John does, a director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks, simply online at FreedomWorks.org. That's FreedomWorks.org. You can regularly read John's insights and musings as well as he serves in the position of political economy editor and columnist at Forbes magazine. The book, The End of Work, Why Your Passion Can Become your job, its author, our guest on this segment of Lifeline, John Tamney. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, the old adage, the proof is in the pudding, or in this case, the proof is in the test scores. As um, uh, millions of students across the country here during the month of May and early June are uh, uh, putting on the mortar boards and crossing the stage with their graduation uh, diplomas in hand or not, Once again, it is raising questions about what's going on in public education. And some of the numbers are, quite frankly, a bit disturbing. For example, did you know that 95% of high school graduates that had completed their educational careers in private schooling, 95% of them go on to a four-year college or university? That compares with public high school graduates for whom only 49% go on to a four-year school. And the SAT scores, wow. You can, I think the top-end number, if you literally ace the test across the board, 1,600 points, right? The average public high school student comes in somewhere in the neighborhood of 1080 to 1220 on a test that only has 1,600 total points possible. That's for public high school students. But private school students, 1,300 to 1,340. So what is the difference? Why seemingly does a child who's gone through private 
education perform so much better. With some insights, we're joined by Patricia Aguilar. Patricia is the principal at Union City Christian Academy. And Patricia, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. How is it exactly that you're able to get such astonishing numbers? What is the difference in your viewpoint as an educator of the performance levels of children who go through private schools versus public? Well, for me, um, first of all, thank you for having me on today. Um, For me, it was very important for my children to not only go to a private school, but for them to have a Christian education as well. That was very important. And with having that Christian education, I realized that their test scores did get better. They, um, because they knew where to depend on for it. And we work very hard in very much smaller classrooms, and it's worked for our school for over 40 years. The smaller classroom, of course, means that you can give each child more individualized attention. And I would imagine in terms of the, the Christian education dynamic, while certainly your students walk away with the same broad knowledge as uh, a child that's exposed to the same uh, coursework and subject matters in, in public education, the difference, I guess, largely is the environment and the spirit in which the educational uh, experience takes place? Yes, definitely. Definitely. The environment is a lot different. Our staff, we are all love God. We love his word. We teach his word. Um, but we are required to have, you know, the same requirements that any state of California, the state of California is required to have. It. And in our school, our children are pretty much a year ahead, even above the public school system wow. because of the time that we're able to spend with them. That, that certainly has got to get the attention of any parent who has been struggling with the, the idea of um, making a transition in their student's life and the moving them out of public schooling into private schooling. When you're talking about the kids that are essentially performing a whole grade ahead, uh, that, that certainly will catch one's attention. When you talk about some of the things that are unique to the educational environment and experience at Union City Christian Academy, for you as principal, what are some of the things that set your school apart? What set my school apart, again, for me, is our staff. The way I start my morning, every morning with my staff, is we start off by praying for our students, praying for our day, um, a devotion, We start our day off by already lifting up our children before they even get there. We care about them. It's not about finance, money. It's not about any of that. It's about the quality of education that we want to give our children. So my school, for me, is because of my staff that care, um, that we're willing to give whatever it takes, whatever hours it takes to be there and to give our kids what they need. Now, the the school there, the campus, of course, located in Union City, you've been around for uh, 40 years now. And for folks that are unfamiliar with or maybe have heard of the school and thought, you know, gee, hearing some of these numbers, uh, both the statistics that I have cited as well as the statistics that are unique to performance levels at Union City Christian Academy. If a parent were interested in possibly pursuing the idea of sending their child to Union City Christian Academy, can they drop by for a visit, get a tour of the campus? All they would have to do is call our office, call um, our office coordinator, Tony Lopez. He will set up an appointment with me, or they can stop by um, and talk to, to Tony 
and he will give them the information and set up an appointment again with me. They'll watch a video that tells about our school, that'll tell about our program. Then I will go in and talk to them to make them feel comfortable. And I let me tell you this. One thing that I do always let my parents know is that I was a public school teacher for years, for many years, <laughs> lots of years. And um, But my kids all went through the Christian education. They all went through this program. So one of the first things I let them know is that I'm not just that I'm not telling them this because I work there and I need to bring my numbers up of students there. I'm telling this, them this because I know that it works. Every last one of my children are in ministry. Every last one of them are college graduates. And I'm very proud of having them in Christian education. So one of the first things I do is I'll, I'll give them my testimony. I will make sure that they see what our program is about, how it works, and why it works. And, of course, at the end of the day, the difference is the outcome in both the statistics for the educational um, standards, such as SAT scores, ultimately, once a child, of course, has, has gone all the way through uh, 12th grade, and uh, also just looking at the change in the attitude. When a child begins to embrace education and begins to love school and comes home with a positive attitude, uh, it makes all the difference in the world, because not only is the child receiving a better, higher quality, more individualized education, but at the end of the day, also an education in an environment that will teach them many of the life skills that they will carry with them, literally through their entire adult life. Want to find out more? Well, of course, open enrollment period for the fall semester available at Union City Christian Academy. And as Patricia Aguilar just mentioned, if you'd like to come in for a tour, come on down, take a look at the school, get a chance to meet the principal and um, learn more about how Union City Christian Academy might be a good fit for your son or daughter, then give them a call at area code 510-489-0394. That's 5 510- 510-489-0394. Information available, too, on the web at uccacademy.org. That's Union City Christian Academy, uccacademy.org. And I'd like to thank Patricia Aguilar, principal of Union City Christian Academy, for being with us tonight. Mention, too, because you listen to this broadcast, you have a child that you'd like to enroll, first-time student, we can get you in at half the normal price. Half the, so how, well, how do we do that, Craig? Well, if you go to kfax.com, check out our back-to-school, half-off-tuition page, you can get more information about how you can enroll your son or daughter as a first-time student to Union City Christian Academy at literally half the normal tuition. Find out more at kfax.com. That's kfax.com.